You're listening to Unfiltered Brew, hosted by Master Cicerone, Joe Vogelbacher, and brewery founder, Eric Flanagan, featuring special guest, Spencer Luders, out of the Sugar Creek Brewing Company in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome, Spencer. Um, what do you think of these new cans? I think it's awesome. I think the first year, last year when we did this and having Dari Calamari make that logo, super excited about it. And uh, the tweaks that you guys did to this year, it's just better. So the beer is awesome. It's my favorite beer and the label looks uh, incredible. So hopefully uh, it brings more awareness and some additional funds to 24 Foundation this year. So I appreciate you guys for doing that. So oh yeah, it's, it's our pleasure. Let's let's open one up. Grab one. Thank you. That's good to go. Now there is there is a way to. You have to educate me on pouring beers because I, you've That's said it to me idea. before, but yeah. there is a proper way to do it. I, I mentioned this on the last uh, the last show, but I I think if you have time, you know, and you're not in a rush, people rush beer all the time, and, it, and you know, if you're servicing the bar, uh, and there's a line of people trying to get a beer. Of course, you want to, you know, you want to get the beer to them fast. But um, there's actually like a resurgence of these things now. They call slow pours, which is basically a stack pour using uh, certain equipment behind the bar. But I think you um, you open it up, and um, if you have time and you want to enjoy it, you you try to fill the glass with three pours. So the way I do it is I foam it up, um, so straight down the middle, and you can control the height mm-hmm. to kind of give you some control on the on how much foam goes in the glass. You want it to foam a lot? Oh yeah. Now the foam that goes back in that's in the beer, you want that to come out and release the aroma of the beer mm-hmm. before it gets into your stomach and it makes you, you know, burp and that kind of stuff. So it makes it more drinkable. It accentuates the aromatics and and um, if you have time, try to do it with three pours. So give it a go. Okay. So can- Eric, you had your your can only a couple inches from the from the glass. I'm just trying to. Not, I'm really trying not to foam over on TV. <laughs> That's all. There's a lot. So of keep going until I get near the top. So when I see people drinking, like you know, at a tailgate or whatever, and they're just drinking from the can, what are they missing by doing oh, that? What a great question. Yeah. So you know, um, flavor. It's three things. It's aroma. So that's everything brought in from the nose. It's all the stuff with your your tongue, your your taste, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami, fat, metallic, the basic senses. And then it's texture and touch. They call that the trigeminal sensation. So that's like mouthfeel, cooling, warming, heating, uh, pain, those sort of things all come together. So the biggest component of that is aroma. Just think about if you had coronavirus or if you knew somebody that um, lost their sense of smell and the impact that had on on their flavor and enjoyment of food, right? So um, when you pick up a can and you drink it out of like this, instead of out of the glass, you're eliminating, it's like having coronavirus. You're eliminating your whole nose from the, the equation, right? It's just going up against the metal. But if you pick a glass up like this, now you're putting your nose right there so you can get the bouquet and the aromas that the, the brewers intended you to kind of smell, right? Um, so you're eliminating it. Now, uh, one of the local breweries down the street, I won't name it because, uh, uh, you know, it's, it wouldn't be good to do it publicly, but <laughs> it's funny cause I have someone say, I, I really love this beer, but I only like it out of the bottle. When I 
pour it in the glass. Mm -hmm. I don't like it. And I said, so what you're actually saying is you don't like the beer, right? Because right. you don't taste it when it's in the, when you're drinking straight from the bottle. But yeah. you know, if it's, it's the, the famous uh, lawnmower beers, you know, they, uh, now this, this, uh, this glass that you're pouring into actually holds 16 ounces. So you can fit the whole thing in there, right? But you'll end up foaming it over, right? So I, I mean, I, I try to get it where it's, I mean, look, look, you can see mine now. It's yeah, actually coming up over the top a little, right? Now this gives like a meringue and a rich kind of um, uh, presentation to the, to the beer. But hey, look, we didn't come to, to do a beer class today. Today we came to talk a little bit about some of the amazing things that you've done, uh, Spencer. And, and to tell you the truth, you're, you know, I've had the pleasure of knowing you now for several years and, um, you know, Eric and I have been involved with supporting the 24 Foundation since uh, since we opened pretty much kind of indirectly. And now we're kind of directly involved. But uh, you're one of my heroes locally here for all the stuff you've done. It's amazing. And and you're always looking to help people all the time and, and help them with their career. And, and, um, and I just want to hear a little bit. I'd love to hear a little bit about what you've what it was like starting the, the 24 Foundation. And, you know, now I think we've how much have you raised over the years? It's been over 20 years, right? Yeah. Uh, Twenty seven million. Something like that. $27 million. I mean, think about that. You know, you could rest easy at the end of your life thinking, hey, I really did something. If, if everything else was meaningless, you can at least say, hey, that's I mean, but the truth is. Not all the other stuff isn't meaningless either, right? So we, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about your experience with the velodrome, setting that up. But um, and make sure you tell people what a velodrome is too. <laughs> it's impressive to see whether you're in the bikes or not. It's very cool to see. Yeah, no doubt. So I mean, with with um, you know, with the. 24 hours of booty coming up in a few weeks. Why don't we start there and um, tell us a little bit about, you know, what how that started and um how you decided to actually make it into like a its own organic thing that's grown and, and runs itself nowadays right that's what every businessman kind of wants to do think too from more the entrepreneurial side too you know because we talk a lot about our problems on this podcast mm -hmm. and a, a lot of the people that listen are you know you know power goes out in the middle of a brew how do you deal with it kind of thing so yeah. i imagine building something like that wasn't easy you know so tell us the good stuff too you know yeah yeah um what year? Start with that. Yeah. So the first, the first 24 hours of booty was in 2002. And, um, and that was just me on the bike. No permit, no road closure, no permission. Uh, pretty much didn't even know if I could do it. I, I had to borrow a bike actually to do it. Um, didn't have a bike at the time. Um, but I'll set the stage though. You're talking about entrepreneurship and kind of mindset and all these other things. So let me take you all the way back. Like why, why I would even have the idea to do this or want to do this. Cause at the time I didn't have cancer in my family even. Right. So why would I even try to do this? So I'm taking all the way back to when I was like five, right? This is when this, this to me, the mindset started like that early. And there was a distinguishing moment that I have never forgotten that I was in the backyard at my house with my dad and there's this field behind our house and we walk through this field and we're walking in the back of this field and, um, and there was a, a weeping willow tree branch in this field randomly. No other trees around, no nothing. And it's, it's green. So I look at my dad and I say, hey dad, do you think we could stick this in the ground and it would become a tree? And he goes, you know Spencer, it's so crazy, it just might work, right? So we go back to the house, 
and stuck that thing in the ground and watered it. And that thing turned to a giant tree. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It actually did. Right. So I, it's like a, that was like a touch point moment that I keep coming back to because that phrase is like permeated my life. Like I do things to see what's going to happen, whether I know it's going to happen or not. Like, like it's risk taking, but in a good way. And like, I, I just do things like this all the time. And so that, that mindset of like, I don't know what's going to happen, but let's see, because something really good could come out of this. And that was like the, that defining moment for me. I was that young. Right. And so I, you know, bringing it all the way forward to, to, to booty. Like I had done things as a kid, like trying little businesses and different things and failing along the way and all these things. Right. But when I got to booty, like I didn't know what was going to happen, but I had this compelling drive to try to do something in my community using the things that I liked, which was riding the bike at the time and wanted to do something they can make a, an impact on the cancer community and kind of, uh, authentic to yourself, right. At the yeah. same time, yeah. stuff that you like to do. So, yeah. I mean, that, that's just awesome. And it's in an area in Charlotte that has got to be one of the most beautiful areas in Charlotte with it is. the tree canopy. And now, um, if somebody else wanted to do an event there, they, there's no way they'd be able to do it. Right. Right. But at the time, like I didn't name the booty loop, which people think I'm the booty loop guy. I'm like, no, I didn't actually name the booty loop. I've tracked it down and there's, there's some lore there. Right. But when I moved to Charlotte in 99, I went to the, uh, it's called the cent Dowd Y. It was called the central Y back yep. then. And the woman behind the counter said, if you want to go running, just go down East Boulevard and you'll hit the booty loop. And I'm like, okay. So I was doing that like everybody else. Um, and uh, so the booty loop was there really? for a good six or seven years prior to me even moving here. And it, it had been known as that. Right. But certainly with 24 hours of booty, it has put the booty loop on the map and people know that neighborhood. It is super beautiful. And, and the neighbors have been really gracious over the years, supporting us and Queens supporting us. Um, so it's been a pleasure to be in that neighborhood. And we're trying to be very respectful of of everybody who lives in the loop and and participates in events in the loop. I've talked to many, many brides who are getting married at Queens during the weekend of 24 hours of booty and lots of, um, lots of things going on there. So we're happy to be there. We're grandfathered in and there's no change in it and there's no new events. It really, are you really great? Yes. Cause I mean, Charlotte has grown a lot yeah, yeah. and I mean, twice now it's grown a lot and yep. the event has too. So that thing's grandfathered in. It's never. Yeah. Yeah, Dave Christopher is the, our guy at the city, and he's he's been wonderful to work with over That's the years. Awesome. I mean, I think it's one of the flagship events in Charlotte. I think it's one of the best because, like you're saying, the neighborhood supports it. It's great views. The oak trees, if you've never been to Charlotte and seen the canopy that we have, it's amazing. It showcases all the mm-hmm. really great things, and it's for a good cause. And it helps that they raise so much money, you know? Yeah, I mean, um, Spencer, can you tell us a little bit about – I mean, for our listeners, um, what was the event like when you first started versus what is the experience like today if somebody was going to go and participate in this um, Mm -hmm. amazing event? Yeah, Uh, much different. So the first, like I said, there was I didn't really have a plan other than trying to ride my bike for 24 hours on the booty loop. So did you accomplish that? I did. Uh, And I. The plan I had was I had rented it like an RV. It would look like the bus from Shazam, if you remember that show. It was it was terrible. It was it actually broke the morning of the event, and um, 
And my, my sister had come up from Atlanta with her family. My wife was there. My dad was out from California, who the guy got me into cycling. And, um, and so the plan was just to get on the bike and ride. So we had like a 10 by 10 pop up in front of Queens University. We had a shoe box to put donations in. We had a couple of banners up. And um, I, had, I had written a note to everybody and put it in their, on their porches or mailboxes on the inside of the booty loop um, a little bit before saying, hey, I'm going to be out here riding uh, at night. Um, will you please turn your porch lights on? Help me. That's, light a, the way. that's a grassroots right. effort right there. Totally. All right. So uh, get on the bike. And there's no fanfare. There's nobody there. There's no, it's, you know, just, okay, it's time to start. Let's go. So I had a buddy, a couple buddies with me at the beginning for a couple laps. And then some of my cycling buddies who were out riding, come down, ride with me a little bit off and on. Um, and so I was very much focused on, you know, you hear Simon Sinek, what's your why? I was focused on the what 100%. I was like, you know, I'm a bike rider. What am I wearing? What am I eating? What am I drinking? What gear am I in? How fast am I going? What's my heart rate? I'm just thinking about the mechanics of actually doing this. And um, over the course of that event, the why came to me. Um, and I didn't know that was going to happen. So the why came to me in the form of uh, people and survivors. And so I'm riding along by myself on the booty loop some point during the day. And I see this person in a driveway of someone's house on a bike and they see me go by and then they click in and they come up and ride next to me. They pull up next to me and they say, hey, are you the guy that's riding 24 hours in Buddha? Yeah. And they're like, um, well, hey, I'm John. I'm, I'm a cancer survivor. I heard about what you're doing and it's inspiring to me. So I wanted on the very first one, you already yeah. had people. That's yeah. awesome. And so word had gotten out a little bit somehow. And hey, you knock on everyone's door for their front porch, right? Yep. Front porch light. Yep. So, so survive. Like yeah. Right? So I'm riding yeah. and I'm listening. I'm just riding next to somebody and they're telling me there's a survivor's telling me their story. And we're like inspiring each other. I'm like, okay. And then a little bit later, it happens again. And it happens another time. And then a guy comes out at midnight who lost his wife to breast cancer. He wanted to do a lap of me at midnight, four in the morning. Some guy randomly shows up on a mountain bike, freezing cold at the time. This was, in, we did it. The first one was in November um, of 2002. So, you know, tell me her story or he was inspired. So I'm not riding fast, I'm, but I'm listening to these stories. I'm like, oh man, by, by the end of the ride, I was, I was so jacked up. I was so hyped. I was like, that was amazing. Like some, something happened where this became like a venue for people to share and, and share their stories and communicate. Like this has to be a thing. Like I, I thought maybe this is a one and done check the box on the first guy to do this done. <laughs> and you know, I'd raise a little bit of money. Great. Um, but I was like, Oh no, this has to be a, this has to be a thing. Like I have to figure out, I don't, I don't know how to run a nonprofit. I don't know how to run an event, nothing, but I have to figure this out. So that started me down the path of philanthropy um, and making an impact. So you mentioned like $27 million is pretty incredible. But what actually I chase after is the impact we've had on people and how many people have been able to experience that same feeling. And that's, the, that's what I chase after every year is like, I, I think it's just amazing that we've had 
thousands of people come through that have been touched by what we've done and they have that feeling, that's like the best thing for me, oh, you know? Wow. Yeah. So, um, so is fast forward to today, it is a well-oiled machine. We have learned, we failed every different way. I mean, so many grassroots things of, I can tell you, <laughs> of how to operationally running the event, uh, systems and procedures and evacuation procedure, all these things we've learned. Um, so now, like, you know, I used to go out on Wednesday and I'd stay out at the booty loop until the event on Friday night. And I was just, my hair's on fire and doing everything. And like, I can show up pretty much like an hour before the event now because the team has, it is dialed. Right. How many people are on your team now? So we have four people on staff at 24. Um, but there's nearly 300 volunteers at 24 hours of booty and, and half it's the police force. Yeah, half the Charlotte police force feel like we're out there, but, uh, which, you know, how many people in general come out for this event now? So it caps at 1200 people participated and that's pretty much nose to tail bike riders around the entire three mile booty loop. Um, and it's varied from year to year, but you know, that's, it gets pretty close and, um, and it's just, you know, what I want people to know who don't know about what the event is, it's not a race. It's, there's no awards for distance. We don't even track it. It's really just, you have this open, you have clo closed roads and you're open to ride it for as much as you want for 24 hours. And it's more of like a celebration. It's, um, I'd say party, but it's like people are out there sharing stories. They're engaging with the community. The neighbors are all out there having parties and cheering everybody on and it's just like wow we just did something awesome we're out here celebrating you know the money's raised and we're we're excited and sharing and being able to put that back into the community is cool yeah that, that is uh it's really a special thing um the pizza at midnight's a saver <laughs> especially when you're <laughs> you putting carbs and, and you need well listen it used to not be you know i remember going to taco bell and just grabbing burritos and driving my car over to Dunkin' Donuts in the morning and trying to feed people. And, you know, now it's like proper meals, yep. Friday night, midnight pizza party, breakfast, lunch, you know, there's programming with survivorship, uh, cafes and all these awesome sponsors are out there and, uh, engaging with the, with the participants and the Bootyville camping area. And you see a lot of camaraderie you know, out there. Yeah. 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 So where, where does the, I guess everybody always asks, right. When you're donating to a nonprofit or, um, and you're collecting that money, where does the, well, of course the money goes towards, um, operating the nonprofit. Right. And then the proceeds left over, um, where do they go and, and what kind of, uh, where do you see that making the biggest impact? Well, one of the things that was important to me is I wanted to, to do something like right now, like the, what can I do now? And that, has continued through the mission of the organization um, in how we support the cancer community. So the way, what we do is our, the, the funds that are raised go into cancer navigation and survivorship. So cancer research is super important and there's billions of dollars from NIH and all these organizations putting billions of dollars into that. You know, we're raising a million ish a year and we think that the best use of those funds um, can be local and needed today, which is, you know, when someone gets diagnosed with cancer, they think, am I gonna live? And then if I live, how do I get my life back? So that's navigation and survivorship. The navigators are people 
We walk you through every, because nobody knows what, to, they're deer in the headlights. So these people know exactly what to do and they, they take the load off you, they schedule your appointments, they make sure you're there, they translate all this cancer speak um, and just lower the stress amazingly. And so those are, those are navigators. And then survivorship is, we fund 60 odd programs at Levine Cancer Institute and Levine Children's Hospital here in Charlotte. And those survivorship services help people get their physical strength back, mental strength back, spiritual strength back. It could be art, healing, touch, Tai Chi, uh, acupuncture, you know, song, uh, tons of stuff. And everybody, it resonates, these programs resonate with people differently, so they're available to people. And um, so, that those are those are programs that are that get people through the second half once they are surviving now they can thrive um spencer i want to ask you about something kind of take us in a different direction for a second um i know originally when you started this that uh, being a cyclist that lance armstrong was one of your heroes hmm. and i if i remember correctly i wasn't involved um back at the beginning but um, you donated the funds to his foundation. Is that right? And then what was it? What it, can you t talk a little bit about um, what that was like with the controversy surrounding Lance and how that affected the organization and your opinion of him and the whole entire thing? Because uh, it's kind of shifted away from supporting that right um, at this point. Right. Yeah. So I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and Lance lived uh, in Plano. So just in, just the town north of where I was. And he's roughly, he's a little bit younger than me, but not much. And I remember reading about him in, in high school. Like he was in the local magazines and, and local papers, winning everything, phenomenal athlete, local guy. So when he was diagnosed with cancer, like right in the, in the you know, middle of his pro cycling career, um, you know, I, I thought, you know, that's what he's trying to do is, uh, important work. And so how can I support my homeboy pretty much? And so, yeah, I was inspired by what he was doing and I was trying to do something on a local level. You know, um, he had a, an event in Austin he was doing. So I was like, can I try to do something like that? I, you know, I'm not him, but I can, I can try something. Um, so yeah, so, um, donated money to Lance Armstrong foundation later Livestrong for a long period of time. And then, um, you know, in 2012, when the wheels fell off and the doping scandals were rampant across post cycling, you know, lives, he departed from Livestrong um, and made us think harder about what we were doing. And we decided to that our money could be uh, better served by staying local. And so at the same time, 20, at the time, we, 24 hours of booty, we had multiple 24 hours of booty events. We had one in Atlanta, we had one in Indianapolis, we had one in Baltimore area. So um, we pulled all that back over, over the subsequent, subsequent years and um, decided to double down, triple down on Charlotte. So, you know, that inward reflection and putting the money locally has actually turned out really well because we can see where that money goes. We can, we can go, the three of us could go to the LCI right now and walk up to the seventh floor and, and see the programs and the people and the machinery that we bought, yep. that, that, that we, meaning everybody at 24 Hours of Booty, has bought. 
and is paying for um, that is making an impact on local people. So it feels really good to do that. So I'm kind of, I don't regret what happened. I mean, I think that was a weird area, you know, era in cycling. And, um, you know, it was, I, I feel for Lance, I mean, it, you know, he was leading this global organization and, you know, I bet he felt like dead man walking, you know, like at some point this is going to come out and then what happens. So I heard that you got to, did you get to meet him or ride with him or did he come to the, the booty loop at one point? Um, no, I've, I've met him talked to him, ride with him a bunch. I mean, um, um, but he, he never made it to booty because usually the tour was ending around yeah. then. So, but I've been down to Austin a bunch and, you know, talked with him. I keep up with him a little bit here and there. Um, so, but you know, that shift, how it impacted 24 was we decided to just kind of go local and that's been great because so many people are moving to Charlotte and there's so many new people. So it's energized me to try to come up with other events that we've been implementing around the calendar to keep 24 foundation, you know, going, uh, other than just having one event, you know, every summer. I mean, the, the one of, um, I think it's gotta be tough, especially when you have, like you said, you're, you know, uh, somebody from your hometown and that, that erupts, that sort of scandal erupts. How did you feel about um, him personally? Did you forgive him for it? And, um, you know, some people are just un brutal when it happens like that, but I'm sure it was, I don't know the details of the whole scandal, but it kind of went across the whole industry, right? He wasn't the only one doing it. It was kind of a, a par for the course, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, I guess the fans, they, they can be unforgiving in the fact that there was deception involved, right? So um, um, how do you reconcile that? You move past it? Because, you know, as an example, one of my, my favorite um, favorite guys is, uh, was Arnold. And, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, what he accomplished, and they have a documentary on him now, actually, on Netflix. What he accomplished coming for, as an immigrant, setting his plans you know, uh, years in advance saying he was going to do things and accomplishing them and doing them and moving through. And then, you know, you find out about his, uh, you know, the child that he had outside of the marriage and his marriage imploded, but this kind of stuff is, is happens in life and nobody's perfect. Right. So, um, what, what do you, can you just expand a little bit, um, what you think about that? Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, when he was, he was a phenomenal athlete, growing up. I mean, he'd been that way since we were kids. And at the era when he went over there, he's talked about this before, um, that, you know, you either went home and stopped cycling or you, you had to do it. So that's a lot of pressure and he decided to do it. And, um, he was, you know, won the tour seven years in a row amongst everybody else. You know, so he was still best of that era and the other sports have had this too, I mean, baseball and you know, bodybuilding and stuff. Um, I think people were uh, really harsh on him because of the way he probably treated some people. There's a lot of document, uh, document, um, documented stories about how he treated people. Um, but he also, he has, he has also told me personally, but also I think it's been in some articles too, that he's tried to make amends with people that he, that he really treated harshly. Um, and that he was, you know, He's financially, and you know, try to make people whole. Um, but yeah, it's 
I'm a, you know, as a man, it's like, yeah, he's, he's come through it. He's, you know, doing, he's doing great things now, you know, uh, in, in his business life and, uh, he's doing some sporting things. And so, yeah, I don't know what else to say. I mean, oh, that's great. Yeah. No, it's you know. fine. Um, uh, maybe we can shift gears a little bit, but thank, thanks for, uh, for telling us about that. But, um, because I, I remember it kind of vividly, but I wasn't in the cycling community and, um, I, I know the foundation was involved, so appreciate that. Um, so back on the theme of, of cycling, um, I didn't know this when I first met you, but the velodrome that we have in South Carolina, uh, you were involved in, in helping to make that concept, planting the uh, the willow branch in the ground down there and making that uh, making that grow into what it is today. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what a vel- velodrome is and and um, about that that process? Yeah. So um, the vel- velodrome is a banked cycling track that you typically see in the Olympics, and there's a track bike has one gear, fixed, no brakes. Um, so it's a special type of bicycle, special type of racing. Uh, and um, you really only see it in, in the Olympics, but it's a great sport. And it's, a, it's sort of a niche area of cycling in general. And so um, I knew about it and watched it before, but um, what really got me thinking about it more was, um, so I, Quick background, I went to school as a um, uh, graduated mechanical engineering degree, went back to school, to law school, uh, to be a patent attorney. So when I was in my second summer of law school, I had an internship in Portland, Oregon. And so I was out there clerking for this firm. And there's a velodrome um, in Alpenrose, which is right over the the hills um, outside of Portland. And I rode my bike over there and started riding on that track. And it's an old track, it's actually gone now, but at the time it was there and I'd never ridden on a track before and it was super cool. And I'm like, this is, we, I, we gotta have one of these, right? And so I started uh, researching how to, what they're about and all this stuff and uh, wrote a business plan uh, and had, had like figured out how to, had the blueprint pretty much on how to do it. But I didn't know how to get it done. So I got back to Charlotte and um, like I, when I moved to Charlotte, I was um, I was just riding with a bunch of guys and racing and stuff and floated the idea and a couple guys bid on it. And one of my buddies, um, who's actually a, a brain surgeon here in town, uh, really locked on with me on it. So we decided, let's try to get this done. So and when we pitched it in Charlotte, it was the same year that the Whitewater Center was pitched in third ward by the football stadium in Charlotte. They put in this concept of Whitewater Center in uptown Charlotte. And Charlotte really bid on that. And so when we were trying to make headway on our velodrome project, they were all about the Whitewater Center. And so we didn't get any any play. We didn't get any, any looks. So my, my partner in this uh, has a medical practice in Rock Hill as well. So he had some contacts. So we just went down there and started talking to him. They'd never heard of a velodrome. They didn't know what it was. They'd never heard of this thing before. So it was a long process um, of... How much did you figure one of these costs to build? So it depends on how you make it. Some are wood, um, but they don't last as long because, you know, and so the ones that you want, the one that we wanted was made out of concrete. So it lasts 30 years, something like that. 
And so I figured out who the, the best concrete velodrome maker was in the world. Sherman Architects in Germany uh, sent them an email, no reply. <laughs> and we're just these, you know, couple guys trying to get something done that's multi-million dollar project. So it was years, like literally years of my buddy Mike Cowan and I uh, meeting with Parks and Rec down there, Parks Tourism guys in Rock Hill, explaining Velodrome, explaining it to the mayor, city council, uh, city manager, taking them to Velodromes on trips. And uh, we, we just kept coming. We just didn't give up. Like we just kept, it was enough there. We're like, you're busy, I'm busy, but they're kind of interested in this. Like what's, okay, what do we got to do next? Well, they want it. They want this. So they want fundraising. They want, you know, whatever. We want a committee. We want, we just kept get, getting it done. And so um, uh, the, there was two main things after years of doing this that, that really tipped it over. One was um, the downturn in 2008. Um, uh, they, there was some government funding that came up for development if you could get a project, tarp, tarp something like that. Yeah. And it was, if you could get a project of X amount that benefited the community, the government would match it or something. So we added on BMX, uh, cyclocross, mountain bike trails, and a crit course as part of the program. We met that threshold so then we could get the matching funds. And credit to city manager down there, Dave Vihan, who figured that out. And, and that was huge because then the money kind of was there. And then secondly, um, Riverwalk, which is where the velodrome is, um, uh, Dave Williams, a developer down there who was putting this whole Riverwalk development together, new cycling, new velodromes. And we talked to him about it. He said, tell you what, I'm going to donate a bunch of land to the city in this project. And I'm going to tell them you can have this land if, if you do these cycling projects. So after about eight years of this, Eight years. Uh, that is a vision, right? Yeah. Now. We we were sitting in the city council meeting and they approved. And Mike and I looked at each other and like, I cannot believe <laughs> believe this happened. And and uh it was a lot a labor of love uh, to be honest. And how many man hours over the eight years? I don't know. And this is when I, this is when he's a practicing, you know, brain surgeon. brain surgeon and I'm practicing law at a firm and then in house at NASCAR. It was just a long time. But we just didn't give up. And uh it's been, I mean, credit to the guys in Rock Hill. I mean, they, they put their, their own necks on the line to make this happen. And I think they've been rewarded, though, because it's been the, the biggest economic impact driver in Rock Hill history. I mean, the, the BMX track down there is arguably the best in the whole world. They've had world championships down there once. And I think there are another one's coming up. Velodrome School. I mean, it's I mean, amazing. It's, uh, man, it's, it's, uh, it's an unbelievable accomplishment. Um, so I have two questions. One is, um, what advice would you give to somebody trying to do something similar, making their dream like this like from concept to reality? Um, and then, and then two is, um, um, well, well, first let's ask, answer that first one. So, um, you, you know, I've had many, many times people said, Hey, can I pick your brain on this? And how did yeah. you, and I've talked to people who want to have tried to do something similar whether it's in the Carolinas or out west or whatever, and it was a little bit of luck, but a lot of a lot of work. Um, and we just—I don't know—we just greediness. Yeah, just perseverance. Um, but you know, 
the, the velodrome and booty kind of started at the same time, right? And so there's a lot going on there um, for me personally, right? And um, when I look back at, at that time, I think what I, I couldn't admit it to myself, but um, I think I, what I realized was I had been chasing the wrong stuff all along. Like I went to engineering school because it's hard and you can get a kick-ass job. And I did. And then I went back to law school because, you know, you can get a kick-ass job and you make a lot of money. So I did that. But all these things were coming out of me while I'm sitting there grinding out patent applications and stuff. And I, I it took me a while to kind of come to grips with like, I don't want to, I shouldn't be doing this. Like, what is, where is my heart at? Like, what am I, what am I actually passionate about or good at? And, and I would, and so those booty and the velodrome were like things that gave me energy and it took me a while to kind of say, okay, like I need to figure out like how to, entrepreneur part. yeah, I just didn't want to, I was, I don't know if I was too afraid or just not educated myself or just didn't, didn't just go after what I was good at from the very beginning. I mean, I can do math and I can do engineering. I can do all that stuff, but like, am I super passionate about it? Like, I don't know. I get more energy from these other things. So I like flip my whole life around. You know, like some people make a lot of money and then they become a philanthropist. Like I just became a philanthropist first and now I'm like been chasing the rest of it later and it's all come back to me, right? It's all, it's all been good, but it was um, like, that was a long, that was a hard period of my life because in my family life, we were having kids and all this stuff because in like crazy times, like all my energy was about like these ventures that like, I'm working on that really have no, like, no real financial, like I don't get paid. I got paid from none of it. Like, it's not like I'm doing it for a job. I was just like, I don't know, but it's awesome. Like community building. I have to do, I feel like I have to do these things, you know? So yeah. bless my wife for putting up with me for that. You know, my second one is, I guess, more of a comment, you know, I, I've been down there and, and it's just a magnificent facility. It's unlike anything around here. And I think you said it was the number one driver in Rock Hill. Is that what you said? And all the work you did over eight years and um, nobody knows that Spencer Wooters was involved with this thing. So I just want to put a public thing out there. I know we probably have one or two um, listeners on here and that's probably it. But if the city ever hears this thing, please let's put up a little plaque at least for Spencer and his, uh, what was your friend's name? Mike Cowan. Mike Cowan. Yeah. Let's get something up there at least for the hard work. They didn't get paid a nickel, built the community like this. It's just phenomenal inspiration. I think more people need to know about it. So, um, look, you didn't do it for the credit or for the money, obviously you wanted, um, and that's truly altruistic endeavor, but how cool would it be to, um, if I was in charge, I put a statue of you guys up there <laughs> riding, on, riding on your bike with a 24 foundation uh, logo, but yeah. no, that, that's awesome, man. Um, just phenomenal. So, um, brewery owners, you have this cool brand you guys have built and, but I don't know if they understand like the risk you guys have taken and the, the, the terror that probably has crossed your mind, just like me buying a business. Like it's, it's not for the faint of heart, but it's like, look at the impact you're having on, not only on your employees, but like the community. And it's like, I don't know if people appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, um, for, for, for me, what scares me is the fact that, um, what I do is what puts food on the table for my family. 
So when I get worried about things, if I, when I get really worried, it's, it's kind of like, Oh shoot. Um, if I fail at this, what am I going to do to provide for the family? That's kind of, that ratcheted up the pressure once we had kids, but I've been an entrepreneur now. I've been working on my own every, in every paycheck coming from my own work, uh, my own business since I was 25. So, um, when I was younger, you asked the question about how do you marry the risk? I, I didn't, I didn't care. It's like, what do you, what do you have to lose? Just do it, right? Do it. And if you fail, no big deal, get up and go again. Right. And then as I started having children, um, I started getting more nervous and then I had kind of a, a hallelujah point because, uh, my wife told me, um, at some point because I was having panic attacks cause the pressure was getting so high. Um, she said, listen, if it all goes to hell, I'm here still, you know, I can help pull us out of the ditch. You know, you're not, you're not alone. Yeah. So having that kind of great support was just massive. That was like, okay, you can charge, charge ahead and give it a go. So, I mean, even now, um, seven, 17 years into this, we're about to take on another, um, $800,000 in debt at the brewery to kind of enhance the customer experience, put addition on the tap room. And, and we're, we're running with a short, term lease right here and with a vision of moving this and building this grand kind of like you had with the Veldrum building this grand facility, maybe over on the, on, in the river. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, why are we doing that? Well, we have to make an ROI and our, uh, we have challenges just like in, in anybody in business with, uh, our building was bought. So, you know, beacon industrial owns the building now and, and our rents going up 300%. So you have, you have to constantly, and I know you know this as an entrepreneur, and, and you, you kind of elaborate a little bit on it with the booty, um, the booty loop and setting up the, the ride is that you have to be willing to change all the time, right? And that's, so not only risk, but change all the time, because if you just do the same thing, some people can get away with it, but I don't think, I think you have to be flexible and, and keep going, but I don't know. What's it been like for you, um, Eric, because you left everything to come same way. This. You know, the biggest, the biggest thing is, you know, the minds of you and I were just talking about yesterday, the mind's a very powerful thing. So you got to keep the mind positive and you got to sometimes have those little wins to get to the big win too, because sometimes the big, the big wins are much further away. You know, your, your big win on, on the drone was what, eight years away. I mean, you've got to be mentally tough to do that, but yeah, I mean, it, it what's, what's always bittersweet is watching hard work for me, watch, watching hard work, eventually kind of age out and then go away. You know, we've had great brands that have done well for us and gone away. We've held on to those too long or projects mm -hmm. that we've held on too long. But I mean, it's the, it's that entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, I mean, you have to be it, persistent you know? and flexible. So, and I was just thinking about this yesterday and almost kind of like brought tears to my eyes uh, thinking back on it was all the different employees who really like, look, if I wanted to just, just be rich. Okay. And that's, it was just about being rich. Mm. I would do something different because the beer business is not that you're not going to get rich doing this. Maybe the 1%, everybody always looks at that 1%, but look, every, every month since we've opened a new brewery started, this is a tough, business and you don't, you don't get rich in it. Right. So I told Eric since day one, he can back me up on this. Like my whole position was I want to do something where I can tap dance to work every day. And I think maybe I had that realization too, like you did Spencer, where you, you weren't, I'm an engineer as well. That, um, that's my background, but 
when you reflect on what you want to do every day, it's not work if you really love it, right? So um, I wanted to tap dance to work and I want my team to tap dance to work too, like make an environment where they can. But it's really hard to do back in the brewery where it's 98 degrees outside in July. So we're in July right now, right? We're actually brewing pumpkin beer, which is hilarious, right? You know, you don't think about that coming up right now in the hottest time of the year, but we're brewing that. And then you're running five huge 500-gallon tanks with steam. It gets 120 degrees back there, right? And you're on your feet for eight to 10 hours. It's hard work, right? And, I, and my mission of having them tap dance to work every single day, it's, it's disheartening for me is what I say when so many people come and go and you as the company is growing, you, you don't like my dream is to be able to share those, the rewards with all of them. And, um, you know, they, it, it burnout's a real thing it happens to people in this industry and they come in people that you love, like your family, like, Hey, I can't take it anymore. I gotta go. Can't, you know, like let's flip this. So I'm constantly thinking, what can I do to make it better in here for them and, um, make, make the place a better place to work. And at the same time, because happy people, and people that tap dance to work are more productive, number one. And um, you just, they're more pleasant to be around. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like, uh, uh, maybe I'm, I'm talking too much, but Jack Welch, you know, he's the famous um, GE CEO. He had like that old culture, the culture tri- triangle, yeah, or the square. And it's basically the idea is 51% is culture and 49% is productivity. And we got to get people that uplift the other people. And, and, and that's the most important thing because you can train people on how to do the job and be more productive. So I don't know. It's a, it's a tough business. I mean, we have, we have more than 30 people here and we have people rotate throughout the tap room. I'm always shocked at the end of the year when we do our W2 Spencer, that uh, it's a stack like this. If you look at it, like where did all these people go? Oh, we had tons of part-time help. We have retirees. Um, we, I, and I'll put this against anybody. I think we have the most diverse staff in Charlotte. Um, we, we have all different kinds of nationalities. We have men, women, we have veterans. Um, and the team shrinks and expands, shrinks and expands. But I don't have anybody. I have nobody here. Actually, we have, we have John DeMont. Our, uh, he's the only person we have Three out of hundreds that have been here kind of since we started, right? Everybody, um, they come, they go, they come and they go. And Eric and I are the mainstays. And, you know, I will say this too. We haven't had a lot of turnover compared to a lot. I mean, we've, we've had people stay with us for years. And then some of the ones that like Joe's referencing, uh, you know, we're friends with a lot of entrepreneurs in the community or other people in the community or, or, you know, they'll have a kid come home, need an internship. We'll bring them on, you know, or we'll have we've had a, com- a couple commercial real estate people come on board because this is prime location for commercial real estate. And they'll work for us for, you know, a year until they get their first you know purchase and then they're out of here. You know, but um, for the most part, we've always kept a really good culture, though, I think. I think a lot of it has to do, though. Um, we're pretty old school. We've got company culture mounted everywhere. You know, we've got our top beliefs, you know, all posted in places. So, you know, we try to keep it as positive as you can, but speak on the brewer thing, you know, uh, I mean, it's a hard job and selling beer is a hard job, but I've said this before too, you know, and it's like this with anything I'm sure. But a lot of times when you're a brewer, 
or even a sales guy, you could say this for anybody, but brewers are easy to say it about, you know, when you lay in bed at night and you think about being a brewer, you tell yourself, oh my gosh, I'm going to drink so much great beer and people are going to be looking at me going, think, oh, so, and, and they do, <laughs> but that's 5% of the time. The other 95% of the time you're lugging around hot hoses. It's hot. Like Joe saying, it's a very demanding environment, you know? So the, the programming going into it can be a much better thing too. If brewers realize, Hey, I'm going to bust my ass. <laughs> and especially a yeah. company that's growing, right? Yep. Like we, we've, we haven't grown as fast as some other breweries, but it's been slow and steady and we're going up, 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 up and sl- and it puts pressure, the growth pressure. And you can probably relate from your own business, uh, Spencer on, on your team because what they were doing this time last year versus this time this year, it's different. And you're it's, it's harder and there's new people and you have to train people and you have, I mean, we have the, I mean, one of our challenges is a different, d- different topic, but we have the most historic and oldest brewery in Charlotte by far. It's a mixture of, we've got a lot of new I mean, this, and a lot of old. This thing was pieced together by originally by John Marino, the founder of old Mecklenburg. And he didn't know what he was doing when he did this. He had never been a production brewer. And all the equipment originally came from so, mm-hmm. uh, South End. South End Brewing yeah, yeah. in South End. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I he mean, found it, put it together, and then we put it together a little bit different the way we needed to. So mm-hmm. there's yeah, a lot of you know those tanks, um, Eric, there I think you well, you know this as good as anybody. One of them, so the copper cladded tanks in the background. One is on display in the lobby at Carolina Premium, which is a uh the big wholesaler in Charlotte, they distribute Miller Coors. Mm-hmm. And I saw another one, another one of the fermenters is at the Time Warner Cable Hornets Arena. Hornets Arena. Yep. Okay, out there. That's part of our brewery. And then the other one I saw was at Noda, right? Did they get rid of it? I think uh, Noda, Noda Brewing had Maybe. It. Yeah, they might have. So we have, ours is in operation still. We've patched these things and maybe we can uh, cut to a picture of the bottom of the kettle but we put 22 patches in the bottom of this thing over the last three years and finally we cut the whole thing out and replace i mean this is kind of stuff you have to do we're so imagine brewing it's hot you're trying to get stuff done and you know your shift's going to end at certain time and all of a sudden you hear a noise sounds like an elephant the bottom of the kettle pops you got to stop what you're doing you know they uh finish the brew out drain it and then clean this stuff out and get a welder in there, patch it. It's, it's, uh, this is like one of those skits I want to keep doing all the time with Joe. When, when we've got a slow point, I want to go, all right, Joe, tell us what's broken the past 24 hours. Every day it's something. I've been over here many times and you were chasing something around that the, the little screw thing that pushes grain or whatever breaks. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's stuff. So, but here's the thing. Why do you guys keep doing this? And I think it, I can draw a parallel to, to why I keep doing why 24 hours of booty is so important because you guys have this vision and you're chasing an experience that you want to have for your yourselves, your employees and your guests who come in here. Like there's an experience that like, it's awesome. And like, you guys know what that feeling is like. And you, as long as you just keep that as like a touch point and come back to that, like that's what gets you through fixing patches and grain things and all this shit that goes on. You know, the hardest thing though, is how do you, how do you project that to your employees, your staff, right? In in your shoes, you know, 24 hours of booty. When you bring on a new board member or, or a new person, how do you help them realize, hey, look, this thing's all about the experience. I know you want to perform at a high level in your position, but don't forget this is what we're trying to mm-hmm. accomplish. I talk about all the time. 
I know people talk about fundraising all the time and it's super important, but I have had, you know, disagreements with people in conversation on the board because I'm like, I, I'm, I'm being facetious when I say I don't care about the fundraising, but I don't care about the fundraising. Like, I just really want the experience to be incredible. And then the fundraising actually just happens. And so I want people to, I just want them to come and check it out. And then they're like, oh, I see what this is about. I think you're right, right? Because yeah. don't they say something like people give with their heart or or they pay with, with the emotions? Story, yeah. storytelling. You guys are in the storytelling business. And we're in, this 24 Foundation is in the storytelling business. And it's impactful and important stories that people need to hear. And when they hear those stories and then they see where the money goes and what it's for and what we're doing, and then they experience the event, then a, a, a light switch flips on. So I don't, you know, you know what I mean? Like the, it ends up becoming fundraising, but I always chase the experience. All I really talk about is that. Yeah. I mean, um, oftentimes people forget what you say, right? This is the classic expression, but they never forget how you made them feel. Mm. So it's, it's, um, that sticks with you. That's one of our company things. And I talk about it in all of our presentations, especially when I go on the road and meet with people. Uh, one of Joe and I's slides is in every beer, we want to, we want to enhance life's experiences with mm-hmm. our beer. You know, we want to make yeah. everything a little bit better. You that, know? That's the mission. So, I mean, if you have, if you have a wedding or if you're at your favorite baseball game or, or, so- or football, soccer or whatever, and you're there enjoying yourself and a sugar Creek beer could be there with you and, um, make that experience a little bit better, help you connect with your friends, um, give you something that's refreshing and that you enjoy, then we're accomplishing our mission, right? That's, uh, that's really what we want to do and, and let you come in. We have over the last nine years, we've had, I don't even know how many people have come in here, but it's maybe hundreds of thousands through here. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands. And we have had, a lot of people, the first time they've met right here in this tap room, we're talking and then they, it's they get, crazy. Ma- they get married and, and have children. Kind of tie and back, it ties back to what you're saying, right? You know, when you're an entrepreneur or when you're on a project, that's very hard. You're so in it. You forget to think about the now you forget to be present, you know, and, um, social media helps us sometimes because Joe and I, and, and I appreciate you, man, wherever you are, we've got a guy that's walking around with an awesome sugar Creek tap handle down his tricep, mm-hmm. you know? And, and we've got people that have shown us and tagged us in Sugar Creek fish balloon tattoos and things like that, you know? Yeah. And so it's, it's amazing when you see that. And even people have connected here yep. because it's not necessarily about the beer. It's about the connection, kind of like you talked about with yep. the original booty um, ride. People connect here. They build families. They get married. They get job interviews. It's really a community meeting place, right? That the brewery is. And that's why I think they've been so popular all over the place because it becomes your local, it's like the old cheers mentality, your local watering hole. But hey, we, we welcome kids in here. You can bring kids in, you can bring your dogs, bring your family. We're kid friendly. Kids can sit right up at the bar and have a, you know, have a soda with you. And 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 people meet up, meet up and, and transactions happen, contracts happen, mar- marriages, um, you know, corp- all these things that have we, we've been fortunate to be part of their lives in a variety of different ways. So it's been that that's what gets you through when you have to pull that that auger out of the grain, uh, yeah. the, the silo 100 feet out into the parking lot and shove it back in there um, or like um, that's every problems. day, though. <laughs> 
things I break mean, every our dream day. is hopefully we have we can have a new brewery someday and when we do that this thing will be uh you know it's a lot different driving a new car versus a, a used one but hey we make great beer here and part i mean definitely going to shed a tear when we when we when we leave this place because um amazing amazing beers come out of it with a lot of sweat blood and tears where people you know i'm taking everything when we leave i think we i think we uh and i've been saying this and it's i'm sure it's controversial but i would challenge any brewery in charlotte to have i don't know if anybody has more awards than us as far as medals go in various competitions we may we might not have the most in great american american beer festival or world beer cup but we have medals in every major competition world beer cup great american beer festival u.s open every single year that's the third largest competition in the country one of the largest in the world i think the smallest one we do is our state cup there was nine thousand um entries this year we got we just got a bronze and American IPA for the Path to Enlightenment, which is huge. One of the biggest categories. Yeah, that's always because that's and what America drinks. So every year since we've been yeah. open, we've won. We've won medals in Best of Craft and North Carolina Brewers Cup and Craft Beer Wars. We won we won the uh, one in South Carolina for the Big O, the IPA War competition. So um, a lot of those medals aren't even up. You know, yeah, I think so we've I would, got thirty five ish or six that are yeah, major uh, competitions. So I'm super proud of that, and it, it happens with old equipment moving. You know, uh, one valve at a time, and uh, blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. And um, well, you know, that's fun. You're one of twenty master cicerones in the world. I mean, you're like I tell people, you're like an F1 driver of beer. Like there's very, very few people in the entire world who have your credentials and experience and background. So I'm not that surprised you're brewing kick-ass beer with old equipment. I can't wait to see what happens when you have new equipment. When we get that Ferrari. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, I don't know if people appreciate that, like that you are here at this brewery with those credentials and how special that is. I don't know. Maybe people do appreciate it. Obviously, the people who do awards and are actually judging beer recognize the output from that um, work. And I know that wasn't easy either, but that was a ton of perseverance to get that done. Thank you. you. Know? Yeah. Now, I had a little bit of a imposter syndrome almost, but I couldn't have done it without the support of my partners, Eric, and my, and my family and everybody, because it, it was insane. Now, you talk about failures. I failed twice before I finally pass. And there's a gauntlet just before you, till you get to the top. Right. So I figured about five, roughly 5,000 hours over six years, six to seven years of real deliberate, hard, like sweat, your brow sweating, um, studying of, of beer. And then not, not only do you have to have the knowledge so you can put it out, spit it out, put it on paper, but you have to do oral, oral board, exams with industry leaders, guys like Mitch Steele from New Realm, who was uh, founder of Stone Brewing, uh, founding brewmaster of Stone. They'll be there. Randy Mosher, Ray Daniels, these guys big in the beer industry, interviewing you on in a brewery you might not know, oral exams, hundreds of pages of, uh, I think I wrote like 117 pages over two days of essays, and then 60 beers blind over the course of two days, Some, something like that, I would say. Uh, you know, three to four panels a day of blind beers in a variety of different ways. And the thing that's challenging about it, Spencer, is that uh, you have to have the you have to have the, the knowledge in there. So they had done the studying, but then you have to get your body to work 
to produce, to let you know what you're smelling and tasting. And, and, uh, and that is not, it's not the same as running an essay. It's like an athletic event. It sounds ridiculous, but you have to get your mind and body in sync. So it's the, it's the nose, the palate, the front part of your brain, the whole part of your brain, you know, where, where all that happened and calm your heart rate down. I mean, things as little as the pH of your saliva can impact how you taste a beer. So you get nervous, you're on the spot and you have to be 85% accurate. That's why nobody passes it. I said, I wouldn't say nobody, but it's 99% mm-hmm. uh, failed. The year that I passed, I was the only one. You do so all that I, and then you wake up and you realize the day of the exam, you got a stuffy nose. Yeah. Well, that's tough too, yeah, right? And, and that happens and, that, and that, puts, that puts people out. So yep. like, I didn't tell anybody this before, but um, speaking of bikes, my brother lives in Chicago and they used to host the exam only in Chicago. And he lived about four miles from the exam where they did the exam in the city. So I borrowed my brother's bike and get up early an hour before the exam or 30 minutes before the exam and ride the bike to the exam. Mm-hmm. And when I get there, I'm sweating a little bit. My heart rate's up. My nose is clear. I've smelled everything. My head's clear. You get out and it's a beautiful day. And then you show up, you're ready to go. You know, you got your body going. And I, I think the bike ride really helped me on the, on the tasting part, really, it really gets you going. But, um, well, there's a lot there. You got that vitamin D from the sun. You've got, Oh yeah. You, know, you, you just feel great. Your eyeballs feel are great. getting blasted with, I mean, that's the best thing in the world. You should have taken your shoes off and walked around in the grass a little ground first, a little you know, bit, no, but ground a little bit. But, um, yeah, last thing I'll say about that is, uh, it was intimidating Spencer because people that have written books about beer or in the, in there taking the exam with me and people that had master's degrees in fermentation and distilling were in there taking the exam with me. People that I looked up to from big companies like, um, Anheuser-Busch or Coors, those big, uh, and they have all the resources in the world. They send people to take the exam there that they've trained and have traveled and work with the classic, like imagine working for Miller Coors and you're studying Pilsner or Kell in the Czech Republic and you can just fly out there and the, you know, company nickel and meet with the brewmaster. That's what the kind of resources they have to be able to do that. And they do that to pass this exam and, and they were in there with me. So it was, it was cool to see them and it was imposter syndrome to, uh, to get through the gauntlet in 2019 and pass and the other guys didn't. So that was, um, but you know, it's, it comes down to persistent because you don't, I didn't pass originally. And a lot of times people say that they get mad at the test. They blame the test. They blame the graders. They make all kinds of their victim mentality for a variety of things quit because it's too hard, too expensive, whatever. And I'm like, I'm not quitting until I pass. That was, that was, I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those are very valid statements. So I'll give you a good example. The Cicerone program was not that big 10 years ago. And the exam was not as distilled down as it started to become. Would you, would you? Well, it, I don't I don't know, but I know it evolved. Yeah. It, so in the end it, it did. And James Ty, who's a good friend of his, and I love the guy. We've had a lot of good times Maybe together. we can get him on the show. I'd love to get him on the show. James has taken the exam several times and he was the best, most humble guy. He's amazing. And he gave me the best explanation. And, and Joe as well. He's like, look, you know. I've taken this exam a number of times now. I won't say how many. Um, And every time it gets a little harder. 
And I, I thought he was right because every day the talent that showed up got better. Every day the beer industry was better. There was more beer. There was better beer. So then you saw, in my opinion, I didn't take the master exam, but I drank a lot of beer with Joe leading up to it. You saw a lot of, of evolution through the beer business and the exam as well, you know, and then on the expensive side, if you're not within a wholesaler or you're not positioned with a brewery that can support you, it's thousands of dollars of beer. Uh, I mean, it's crazy. You yes. know, I mean, English bitters and German styles. Joe had to become very fluent in every style of beer. And there was times where I was driving across the state line to go find proper beers to bring back for him to yeah. taste. So, yeah. I mean, that, that, um, was, uh, that was a blessing. And then how many years is it total? Like when we when we when you read the story at the barbecue joint at, at lunch and you're like, this is what I want to do. About six years. Yeah. So that, that's I mean, that's long as a velodrome, but six years and you, you try to set the standard for the employees. Hey, I want to do something like this and let everybody know we take quality serious and uh, and learn and, and then you you know you kind of go through it. But I mean look, the one thing that's disheartening about it, and then I'll I'll stop beating this dead horse, is uh you do something like that and you're proud and then you go online and you see that you know the, the trolls always show up and, and they say one thing that just blows my mind and I'm not surprised by it. But people get pissed off at the Cicerone program because they're like, this is just a money grab. This whole credentialing thing is a money grab and it's expensive to get through it. And, um, you know, I'm not doing that because I don't want to give a dollar to the Cicerone program because they're just a business trying to be for profit. Right. Well, wait a second. So you're saying you're going to stay uneducated and dumb and not, you know, not challenge yourself Not to say that they are. Well, I mean, look, you know, they, the credentialing is there for a reason. It lets people know that you have a trusted expert in whatever field it is, whatever you want. And that's And Ray recognized this years ago. He was a visionary. He's retired now and the, his uh, people run the, run the business. But um, Ray recognized that there was a humongous dearth of educated people in the craft beer business. And it was growing and people didn't know how to handle beer properly. They didn't know how to handle it. They didn't know how to serve it. They weren't brewing it properly. So he's a Harvard grad. He has a Harvard MBA and he's smart dude. And he set up the program to kind of like, Hey, you know, when you hire a guy like this, or, you know, he's, he's got this, that they, they have a base level knowledge a base understanding. That's why you have a bar exam for an attorney, right? So is it a money grab to go get certified as an attorney? Would you say it is? No, it's just like becoming a certified welder, certified attorney, certified doctor. Don't doctors have to pass board exams? All that costs money to put on. And if you ask Ray um, about this, because I, I have, he'll tell you that he makes the least amount of money on the master at the top. It's more because the least amount of people take it. It's the most difficult to put on. They have so it's many It's the guys. cheapest per capita. Yep. And um, it's the hardest to get to. So he, it's not like he has a huge hundreds of thousands of people trying to take it. It's, it's, there are, um, he makes his money on the very, very beginner, beginner one where it's more open to everybody. And the top, top levels are, he does that just, um, you know, as part of the business plan. It's not a money maker for him. So um, I don't know. Anyway, I beat that horse with a with a stick. Well, I mean, but. it's a good point. I mean, it, it, in the end, you end up you there is there's always going to be a group of people that doubt. 
you know? So the biggest thing for me is as long as you can still enjoy your beer without dissecting everything, you're good, you know, because that's why we got into this. Well, one of 20 is impressive and it does mean something. So I hope people recognize that. Yeah, 22 nowadays. Okay. One thing you said I wanted to circle back on, it was referencing like young people and starting when you're young. Yes. And I think that's an important thing to talk about because like that's the time to take the risks and like don't play it safe. You know, I feel like I went way down the road, way too far, just chasing money or, or, you know, the safe bet. And I should have been taking more risks early. And I've had, I mentioned to you guys, like I've, I've had guys who were in their forties and fifties, like saw what I've done with booty or buying a business and all this stuff. And, they're too afraid and they have too much on the line. Like, you know, they don't want to give up their 401k or put risk it or their house or whatever. And that's, you know, I understand that. Right. But when you're 25 or 22, like that seems like the time to be throwing stuff out and seeing what sticks and chasing after things that you're good at and you like doing, because ultimately I think you mentioned this about being a brewery owner. It's like, you know, you're not doing it for the money. You know, and chasing after money alone is actually pretty dumb. Like, I, I, that never really ends well. You might have a lot of money, but you're hating your life. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. So that's a very good yeah. point. And you can, yeah. you'll find a way. There's a bunch yeah. of different ways to make a living, provide for your family, you know. But there's something to be said for doing things you're good at and having joy with what you're doing and control over what you're doing. Um, there's a lot to be said for that. So young folks that may listen to this or talk to you guys, I think should, that shouldn't, that point shouldn't be lost. You know, take the jump, man, yeah. take the jump, do it. It's jump a good in. point. I mean, you're, you're lighter on your feet. You can move, you can maneuver faster. You can pivot. How many times we had to pivot. It's, it's definitely a lot harder when you've got more feet, you know, people to feed, yeah. but uh, you know. Spencer, can you show us, can you show us your newest tattoo? And tell us a, a little bit about that because that's a kind of inspiring. He loves these zinger questions. Uh, he got me last week. The latest one I got is this. Is this one? Yes, that it's, one. Um, so that is an that is an arrow with a bent, and it's actually a nod to Lance. Um, he had he had created this logo, um, and the message is always forward, never straight. And to me, that I like that because it speaks to perseverance, like. It's never going to be straight. There's always going to be twists and turns and kinks, and you just have to keep going. And if you keep going, like you'll make it. Like we just we just did a crazy event a couple of weeks ago, and like Same it was it was, was it was yeah. challenging. So we did we did 24 mile plus paddle boarding. Never really been on paddle boards before. That's and, what happens when you hang out with this guy. Yeah. You just, but hey, there's crazy uh, once again, I didn't know what was going to happen, but we had done some preparation and thought we could make it, and we and we did it. Yeah. But the, the kicker on that, just like most things, is if you just keep putting your paddle in the water and don't give up, you'll get there. And um, um, I think that's having that, that longer-term uh, vision. And um, this is just a reminder to me, like, that's – like, just keep going. And to put that into perspective with your tattoo, the event, you know, there were so many, there was so much bobbing and weaving on that paddleboard event. Um, it was 24 miles. And, 
you kept thinking the finish line was right around that corner, you know, but you just kept putting your paddle in the water. That's insane. What an accomplishment and what an awesome event, uh, going to be coming up dam to dam, 24 miles, stand up on the paddle board, see if you have what it takes to get through it. And it's 10 hours almost, is that 10 hours? And, um, and then on top of that, um, that's going to be a good visual in the lake too. You know, when you see that many people on paddle boards, I mean, yeah. just the people that we stopped at, when our little group came up with the safety mm-hmm. boat, everybody was smiling and everybody oh, was awesome. so happy. Just awesome. You man. know, we had people clapping for us and a lot of them didn't even know. A lot of them were Garmin people that saw the event on Garmin. So very cool stuff. And then that's a that's a future event. This guy never stops thinking. So that's a future event that he's putting together. So that one's in, in the works right now. Well, hey, um, thanks so much for coming today, Spencer. I thought the conversation was great. You're an inspiration to us. And keep up, keep up the great work, and I hope we can share a few beers more in the future, and keep helping to support the mission and, and um, keep inspiring. And a special big thanks to Mrs. Luter. She's great, and I, you know that was the very first thing when I met Spencer. I wanted to know if he was married because he spends a lot of time in the community. So, um, hats off to her too. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, guys.